You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. As we continue in our study of John's Gospel, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. John 21, verses 1 through 14. It's like everyone's found their place. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, and they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for uh, this wonderful story that you have recorded for us, and that you've preserved for us, for our edification, for our growth and grace, that we might come to know you, become more like you, that we might praise you and have the capacity to worship you at a greater level. And Father, all of these reasons, for all these reasons, we pray and we ask that, Father, you would open our hearts to this text and teach us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As a matter of review, last week we started this text and we didn't get any further in verse 1, and there's good reason in that. We only just began to look at the tip of the, well, really the iceberg of verse 1. In verse 1, we have a number of themes here, and I want to review. I'm going to try to be very brief in my review, but I have three reasons for reviewing last week, uh, what we've covered last week in verse 1. One is our memories. You know, our memories, they fade, don't they? Um, Usually by Tuesday, it's hard to remember. Uh, So our memories fade. Um, Two, the benefit of those who didn't hear last week's message. Uh, We can't go into great detail, but I want to cover a little bit of it. And three, you know, what we're going to look at this morning in many ways uh, stands on the shoulders of what we looked at last week. So uh, notice um, a couple of things about this verse. We're first confronted with a time frame. We spent a lot of week last week um, on that. With the words, after this, um, Jesus revealed himself again. So after this, we could ask the simple question, after what? Well, after the event that took place in verses 24 through 29 of the previous chapter, namely the second appearance of Jesus to the disciples. 
And of course, it's in this second appearance is where Thomas is brought really back into the fold, if you will. Thomas, whose heart was crushed. And of course, that takes us back two weeks ago where we looked at that in depth. Uh, Thomas's heart uh, being crushed is healed, if you will, by the presence of Christ. And we see that great thing happening. Now, in terms of time frame, we know that that is taking place exactly one week from what we could call Resurrection Sunday. Um, Resurrection Sunday being the very first Easter, if you want to call it that, the very first um, uh, uh, Sunday, if you will, where Jesus rises from the grave and he meets the disciples. And this event is recorded for us in verses 19 through 23. Jesus appears to the disciples as they're gathered behind locked doors and he appears to them there. And uh, that is the first appearance that John is making reference to. The second appearance would be verses 24 through 29. That would be one week later. And in terms of time frame for this third appearance, uh, we, we only get a little bit of information. We're not given a precise time. But if you look back to chapter 21 and verse 1, notice the reference to the Sea of Tiberias. Now, what is the Sea of Tiberias? It's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And we looked at that last week. The disciples are in Jerusalem when Jesus appears to them the first time and the second time. That is when he appears to them as they're all together, the first time and the second time. So we know that Jesus appears to them on day one. And the time between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension is approximately 40 days. So Jesus appears on day one with the disciples as they're gathered. They come to church. Jesus joins them and comes to church that Sunday. He does it again exactly one week later. They are gathered behind locked doors. Jesus meets them. Now, they need time, if you will, to get from Jerusalem all the way up to the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. And we looked at that last week. And I read somewhere, and I meant to look at this again this week, and I, I, I didn't get an opportunity. But it seems to me it's about a 75-mile Trip, And that's what we were working with last week. And to put it into concrete terms, it would be like walking from here to Mount Morris, which is the last exit on 79 when you're on your way down to Morgantown. Some of us are very familiar with that trip. Um, that would be, it would, you just simply can't do that overnight. You can't do that in a couple of hours when you're on foot. I think it would probably take a minimum of about four days. In all likelihood, it's probably another week maybe 10 days. So anywhere on the inside, another week to 10 days. So we could say day 14, uh, day 17, any time between that and maybe towards the end of that 40-day period. It's going to become more clear why I'm spending time on that in a few moments. Um, but notice the word revealed in the text. Uh, I, I pointed your attention last week to the fact that that sentence could be rewritten to avoid using the word revealed twice. Our English teachers would probably take that sentence and say, okay, let's see if we can rework that and make that a little more concise. But of course, the um, apostle writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing and why. I mean, it's always amazing to see how much is said in so few words in Scripture. I brought that out last week. Uh, Scripture is often very concise so that when you encounter a sentence like that, uh, it, should, it should draw our attention to the fact that John is emphasizing the fact that Jesus is revealing himself. We can see that. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. And then it's said again in verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples. You might even say this is three times 
There's a lot of emphasis here on the fact that Jesus is revealing himself. And the rest of the sermon last week was spent on, on gleaning from that. What is Jesus up to? We looked at Mary Magdalene last week, and from her experience, as Jesus reveals himself to her at the tomb, she clings to him. And Jesus says to Mary, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father, but tell the disciples that I'm ascending to, the, to my Father and to your Father. And we ask the question, why? Why does Jesus tell her not to cling? And the best answer that I have heard uh, on that question is that Jesus is, is working with, he is working with Mary. He is working with his disciples to show them that he is still going to be present with them, but not present in the way that he has been present with them up till now. It's hard for us to get our minds around that. Um, I, I've been trying to retrace uh, through the last couple of weeks the experience that the disciples have so that we're trying, we're making an attempt to walk in their sandals, if you will. But none of us have spent three years with the physical presence of Jesus. We just haven't. Of course, Jesus is present in our hearts. Jesus is present in our lives. But to try to understand what's going on here, we need to use our imaginations a little bit and let us imagine that day in and day out, we are with Jesus. He is physically present. Donald talked about a trip. I mean, me and Donald, I don't think we were more than eight feet away from each other for almost two days, right? That is the kind of presence that they experienced with Jesus for three years. Now, try to imagine the confusion. Try to imagine the perplexity that all of a sudden now he's just making these appearances and then he's disappearing. He's appearing and disappearing. That's what's going on here, and we want to build on that. Now, let's get moving here, or we're never going to make much progress. If we look at verse 2, there we see Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other of his disciples were together. Notice we have a list of names. And uh, in an earlier message a few weeks ago, I, I talked about that. You know, when we were looking at verse 19, there we're just told behind closed doors where the disciples were not given a list of names. And you remember I said the Bible is not bashful about giving us lists of names. Here, we're given a list of names. We're given a list of five names. Simon Peter is present. Thomas the twin is present. Thomas called the twin, rather. Nathaniel of Cana. We haven't seen him since all the way back in chapter 1. He is present. The sons of Zebedee. We could spend the rest of the morning simply on that phrase. But for this morning's discussion, the sons of Zebedee are James and John, who play a prominent role in the gospel story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But they're, they're not named here. Simply as the sons of Zebedee, they're called. So here we have five disciples uh, out of seven that are named. We can be precise about who's present, at least with these five disciples. We can conjecture about the other two. We're not going to this morning. But I think the point, we might even ask the question, why? Why are five named and two unnamed? I, I don't know, but I, I think, I'm inclined to believe, and I'm offering you my opinion here, and it's not simply my opinion, it's the opinion of others as well. But I think, I think this should comfort us because we're given not just names in this text, but we're given big names. Simon Peter is a big name, isn't he? Nathaniel, Thomas, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. 
I mean, isn't it not Peter, James, and John who are present on the Mount of Transfiguration? But then we, we have these two others, unnamed. And we should be able to relate with those who are unnamed, should we not? I mean, on a national level, nobody knows who Rick Anderson is. And that's fine. That's, that's fine. On a regional level, I doubt anyone knows who Rick Anderson is. Paul says, listen, not many of us were of noble birth. Most of us are going to go down in the history books unnamed, unmentioned. Are we unimportant? So often in the church, I hear people say, oh, I'm not important. You know, no one, no one, I, I don't make much of a difference when I come to church. That's a whole sermon. We could spend the rest of the morning on that, debunking that. But I think it's really wonderful. And this is not the main point of the story. It's a side point. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But it's, it's, isn't it wonderful that two disciples aren't named? Jesus didn't reveal himself any less to them than he did to the others. And it's been a while since I've said this, but I've said this many times through the course of my ministry, especially through the course of the last 14 years, that I think when we get to heaven and we discover those who have really lived lives that were pleasing and God-glorifying in this earthly pilgrimage are going to be people we've never heard of. They're going to be people who went off into obscurity, self-sacrificing, living uh, God-glorifying lives to people we've never heard of. They're going to be folks we've never heard of. I, I really believe that. And here we have these unnamed disciples now, in verse 3, uh, Simon Peter, they're up by the Sea of Galilee, and Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, again, this is not a main point, but I don't want to skip it, and I got to try not to spend too much time on it because I don't want it to uh, eclipse the main point I want to make this morning. But, uh, I, you know, there are some who read this verse and they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. There are some who read this verse, and this is, this is what they'll conclude from this verse. Look at those disciples backsliding. Look at them falling back into their old patterns. Didn't Jesus back in chapter 20 and verse 21 tell them, listen, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. What are they doing back in the fishing boats? They're falling back. They're falling back into these patterns. And, of course, that's one way we could look at this verse, as them falling back and backsliding into patterns. There are some uh, in the church, and we need to recognize that uh, some of these folks really, truly are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when I say church here, I'm not referring, I'm not limiting the, the language to tri-state community church. I'm saying the church at large. There are some that, for whatever reason, when they see a verse like that, they're automatically going to go to the negative. And it can be painful. It can be a source of pain. Let me, give you a, let me, let me just give you an illustration out of my own life here uh, that will help. And this is really helpful, especially if we're new to the church, but it doesn't matter if we're new to the church. It's helpful to know this. When we plant churches in the ARP, the way we do it, it's, it's terribly antiquated, but this is the way we do it. Funds are raised for the church planner 
Uh, he gets his full salary the first year. He gets two-thirds of his salary the second year. He gets a third of his salary the third year. And the idea is by the third year, a congregation is formed that is self-supporting. Now, some of you are smiling. You're la- it's like an absolute fairy tale, isn't it? Uh, and all this pressure is put on you, and you really think you're going to accomplish this. You know, the gate drops off, you go. And you think this is going to happen. And I can tell you from personal experience, Tim and I, first year was pretty nice, wasn't it? Second year was a little tight, but we try to live frugally. And, and you know, um, it, it wasn't bad. The second year wasn't bad. But try to imagine, um, try to imagine living on a third of your salary. Try that sometime. That's when it got a little dicey. And um, we had three choices at that time. One was quit, which has never been an option for us. Two is fundraise, start fundraising, which is a viable option for some. I have never wanted to go that route for this reason. When people see me coming, I do not ever want people to think, here he comes, he wants a check. It's very important to me that no one would ever think that when they see me coming. What I would perf- what I really work hard is, is to present when people see me coming, they're thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about the gospel. They're thinking about that. So that really wasn't an option for me. And I'm not throwing stones at anyone that would do fundraising. We don't really do fundraising around here. I mean, I don't think we ever have done fundraising around here. Um, and again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Um, the, the third option is to get a job. And the Lord had put a job in front of us and um, so as I started to announce, you know, I'm, I'm going to be working full time. Most people understood that and were supportive of that. But there were some, not in this congregation, but outside in the church at large. They really threw a, ro- a lot of rocks at that. And here's the thing you need to understand. Sometimes when we go through those periods of time, I mean, I heard things like this. The, the minister of the gospel should get his wages from the gospel, and the laborer deserves his wages. And it, it, I, I took a lot of criticism, almost like I'm going back in the fishing boat. What are you doing? You're, going, you're retreating back to the fishing boat. And it was very painful because a lot of times when we receive this kind of criticism, it's not when we're at our strongest, it's when we're at our weakest. Now, why am I sharing this story with you? Because in the church, we sometimes will get these darts thrown at us, unfortunately. And I'm sharing this with you to let you know, first of all, I've been there. Tammy has been there. We've had, we've, we've had this happen. Secondly, I'm sharing this with you, and this is a side point, is that if the Lord calls you to walk through a season like that, don't think something strange is happening to you. He has his purposes. Tammy and I, yesterday over a cup of coffee, t- yesterday morning, we're talking about not only how much all of you have grown over the years, but how much me and her have grown over the years. And it's, it's through those uncomfortable times that we grow. It really is. We, we have to suffer these things. Um, there's another way we could look at verse 3. I think it's a much more refreshing way. And again, I'm offering an opinion here. But if we look at Simon Peter, they're up by the Sea of Galilee, and Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And if if we've been trying to retrace the steps of the disciples, haven't we? And we think about the emotional roller coaster that they've been on from Palm Sunday to Thursday night when Jesus gets arrested to Friday when he's delivered to be crucified, then he's crucified, dead, and buried 
to Sunday appearing for the first time, and then a week later appearing the second time to them. You want to talk about an emotional roller coaster, a spiritual roller coaster. And even yet, they're in a period of transition, a period of, 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 of uncertainty. What's next? They don't know. So they get back to the Sea of Galilee. They get back to Galilee. They've been instructed by Jesus to go to Galilee. They're supposed to go to Galilee. They're being obedient by going to Galilee. It shouldn't be surprising to us that Peter goes, I think what we could really use is a night on the lake. Does that sound far-fetched? Oh, that sounds great. And some of you are fishermen. Hey. Right? That just sounds really good right now. Now, again, this is conjecture on my part. But... It could be quite therapeutic, couldn't it, just to spend the night on the lake? So that's what they do. And we're told that as day is breaking, a stranger standing on the shore, at least to their estimation, he's a stranger. They don't know who it is. And the stranger calls out, children, do you have any fish? Now, we know that they've caught nothing all night, so the answer, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, before we go any further, some, some commentaries will say, you know, they're, they're out on the lake, they've been out all night, and they're frustrated. I don't believe they're frustrated. Why do I not believe they're frustrated? I, did a, I spent a lot of time in my adult life uh, as an electronic technician, and some of that time was spent in the public, uh, working in the public. And um, a guy that I used to work with, he would always refer to a certain personality as the expert. Um, it, you know, you're out in public, you're working on something, and there's, there's usually, sometimes there's folks, they just have a certain personality where they, they want to come and they want to tell you how to do it, you know? They, and, and you're trying to concentrate and you're trying to focus. And, you know, if you haven't had too frustrated, you can have a lot of patience for that if things are going okay. But when you're really frustrated... Um, that's generally when you do not want to heed these voices. You, you, you know, a friend of mine used to say, oh, boy, here comes an expert. You could see them from a distance, and you could see them coming, and you'd be like, okay, here we go. I don't think the disciples are frustrated. Why? Because a stranger's on the, on the shore, and he's telling them to cast their net on the other side, and we're not hearing, we're not hearing them say, oh, you don't, you don't think we've not thought of that. <laughs> or you don't hear them say, oh, here... You know, we've been at this all night, thank you very much. Who made you the expert? I don't think they're frustrated. Why? Because there's no argument. What do they do? Okay, toss it on the other side. What do we got to lose? That doesn't sound to me like frustration, does it? I'll leave you to be the judge of that. But as soon as they throw that over the other side, suddenly... They're inundated with this large, miraculous quantity of fish. As experienced fishermen, they know it's not supposed to be this way. And it's in that moment of time that the disciple, verse 7, whom Jesus loved, who we know to be John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, when Peter hears it, he immediately grabs his, his outer garment. He dumps, uh, jumps into the... Uh, see and makes his way to Jesus. The other disciples, verse 8, come in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. They're not very far from the land. Uh, they got on land. They saw a charcoal fire in place. Verse 9, 
Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. Verse 11, Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Let me, let me just say something about the number 153. Uh, if you read um, any commentaries on this passage, you're going to encounter some ancient interpretations of the 153, uh, some of which are very uncontrolled exegetically. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples that 153 stands for the number of species of fish that are in the sea. So there's um, a fish of each species in the sea, in the, uh, in the, sea, in the net. Uh, another one goes like this. It's a little bit more fanciful. But 153 um, stands for uh, 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 the law, if you will, and grace. Now, how do you get law and grace to add up to 153? It goes like this. The law, 10 is the number of law because there's 10 commandments. Seven is the number of grace. And I'm not sure how seven becomes the number of grace. I don't know. But you have 10 and you have seven. And when you add 10 and seven together, you get 17. Someone said, what's 17 got to do with 153? Well, when it's, when it's added up sequentially and inclusively, it totals to 153. And someone say, Rick, could you repeat that again? If you take number one and you add it to number two and you add it to number three and you add it to number four and you go all the way to include 17, you get the number 153. I did it on my phone. It works. So it stands for law and grace. How obvious. <laughs> um, you know, what do we say to that? Well, if we are in the book of Revelation, John uses numbers symbolically in the book of Revelation. In fact, one of my exam questions when I was being examined for ordination was that. Uh, what is the significance of numbers in the book of Revelation? I remember the question. Um, but even though John writes both the Revelation and his gospel, this gospel, he hasn't been using numbers symbolically throughout the writing of John's gospel. There are three things that are important in studying Scripture. Context, context, and what is the third? I told everybody at the park, there are Bible study at the park. You still are so kind to me laughing at that joke after. It's, it's really an old joke, but um, I have a reason for continually saying it. He hasn't been using numbers symbolically, so... Um, What's the purpose of 153? You know, merchants, when they're done at the day, they count the register, don't they? And if you're in fish, I mean, anybody who's in fishing, I mean, you don't even have to be into fishing. I'm not into fishing. But one thing I know is numbers are really important to fishermen. They like inches and they like pounds, right? That's the, the, that's the essence of the big fishing story, isn't it? Inches and pounds, right? But even if these guys are businessmen, I mean, how do they count their register at the end of the day? They count the fish. What does 153 mean? There were 153 fish. I'll leave you to decide. <laughs> but I think that's, it's a miraculous catch. That's the point. It's a miraculous catch. And much more could be said about it. But let's start putting some of this together what is going on here? Well, notice that uh, Jesus has been appearing to them. And he's been appearing to them through the course of, we could probably say, three weeks. That's safe to say. We know he appears on Resurrection Sunday. He appears one week later 
to the disciples as a whole. He's making other appearances. But to the disciples as a group, as a whole, Resurrection Sunday, seven days later, um, back on Sunday, I think it's safe to say probably at least seven days later, maybe 10 days later, but some unspecified time frame that has a bit of a lag time associated with it. He appears to them again. And what is he doing? It's very clear what he's doing. The disciples are in a transition period. They're in a period where Jesus is always going to be present with them. He promises always to be present with them. But right now, he's not physically present with them, and that's all they've ever known. They haven't known anything else. Now, Jesus could have simply appeared to them on Resurrection Sunday and said, hey, go to Galilee and wait, and then appear to them right before his ascension. That's not what he does. He appears to them in between that period of time. Why? Because our Lord continually stoops down to meet us in our weakness, doesn't he? Isn't that wonderful? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And what does that mean? That means this is what we can expect from Jesus. He is not bashful. He is not burdened. He is not put out to continually meet us in our weakness, giving us guidance, giving us strength, seeing that we get everything we need. And the second point that I want to make, and I I got this point from William Taylor, and I want to read the actual quote because I think the actual quote is so cool. And, of course, William Taylor's probably writing in close to the mid-1800s, close to the mid-19th century, and he writes this, In the dispensation of the ascension, the presence of Christ with his people is to be known not by the sight of his visible personality, but by inference from the effects produced by his working among them. Now, someone might be saying, Rick, I'm glad you think that's so cool. I have no idea what you just said. Well, you're not staring. You're not, first of all, it's something that's meant to be read, although I think this was part of a sermon that he preached. So what is being said right here? Well, in the dispensation of the ascension, what is that? The dispensation of the ascension is the time period from the, from the time Jesus ascends to the right hand of God the Father Almighty and is there coronated in session with, with the Father to the time that he will return. And someone will say, well, that sounds like right now. Exactly. It's right now. We are in the time or the dispensation of the ascension. He says, in the dispensation of the ascension. In other words, right now, the presence of Christ with his people is to be known not by the sight of his visible personality. In other words, the presence of Christ with his people is not to be known by his physical appearing, by his physical appearance but by inference from the effects produced by his working among them. In other words, how do we recognize the presence of Jesus today, here and now? It's by inference from what he is doing in the midst of his people. That's in the midst of his assembled people, in the midst of his church. Does this make sense? 
Now, there's lots of things that could be said about that. I'm going to limit it to three. I want to talk about worship. How about worship? Jesus' presence can be known in worship. You see, if you go back to our text, it's not until this large quantity of fish is caught that they recognize it's Jesus on the shore. As this large quantity of fish is caught, John recognizes it's the Lord on the shore. In other words, how do they recognize? This is so brilliant on Jesus' part. He's teaching them how to recognize his presence in this new dispensation by performing a miracle, but not just any random miracle, but a miracle that they would be familiar with, one that they've already experienced, which is recorded for us in Luke 5. That's why we read from that passage earlier today where Jesus is teaching. There's a large crowd. There's two boats. They've been fishing all night. They've caught nothing. Jesus gets in one of the boats. Peter gets in with him. He goes out. He teaches for a little bit. Then he says, Peter, let's go out. Put out in the deep and cast your net. And what's Peter say? I think he was frustrated with his catch the night before because, Lord, we did this all night long. We didn't catch nothing. I'm the fisherman. You're the teacher. But nevertheless, you're the Lord. He's not expecting to catch anything. Out into the deep they go. He throws the net out, and there's so many fish in that net that it tears. And what does Peter say? In that moment in time, Peter recognizes that this has to be a divine act. And he suddenly, suddenly, Jesus' identity is in part revealed to Peter, and Peter says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Peter eventually says to the disciples, fear not, you're fishermen, but I'm going to make you catchers of men. That's running in the backdrop of this story here. And as this miraculous, as this miraculous catch is taken here in verse 6, it is then, God, Christ working in the midst of his people, it is then that they begin to recognize his presence. Now, what's that got to do with worship? As our society and culture becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity, this actually is going to become more and more visible. What is going to become more and more visible? People gathered in gatherings like this and singing praise from their hearts to Jesus. Do you understand that we would not be doing that if Jesus wasn't present with us? Now, too often we come in and we think Jesus is only present when we get the goosebumps, you know, or he's only present when we certainly, when we, when we get this certain feeling, we got to have this certain feeling. When we get this certain feeling, well, then that's when he comes to church. No, we might get those feelings. Sometimes he blesses us in ways and it's marvelous and wonderful when he does. But when we, when you, regardless of what your state of mind is, when you come in here, if you hear the person next to you and the people behind you praising the Lord from their hearts, at least especially singing the words that we're singing, which are all words extracted from the scriptures or at least from principles that are taught in the scriptures, we wouldn't be doing that if Christ's presence wasn't with us. So we need to learn and we need to teach that this is one of the ways that we see and discern Christ's presence with us. So if we wake up and we decide not to come, what are we missing out on? 
you're missing out on the presence of Christ. That's what you forfeited. Because we live in a culture now where people are quite flippant about coming to church. And I'm not trying to be unkind here, but that's where we are. And I think we need to teach this if we want the blessing. You know, Thomas wasn't with them that first evening. I made a little bit of noise about that. But Thomas, I, don't, I haven't slammed Thomas through this study, and I'm not going to start now. Thomas is a man whose, whose spirit is crushed. Sometimes that's the case. We're not up to it. But being flippant about the presence, about coming to church, we're going to miss the presence of Christ. Does that make sense? That's where it is. That's just where it is. I'm not trying to be unkind, but that's where it's at. Second point is growth in grace. We've been talking about that through the course of this service, haven't we? We've been talking about growth in grace. We can look around, and sometimes I think it's easier to look at one another and see growth in the other guy. <laughs> we might think, I'm not really growing much, but I see, oh, how much Dean has grown, or I see how much Harry has grown, or I see how much Dylan has grown. And we could go around the room. But how much have we all grown? Tammy and I were reflecting that on that yesterday. You do not grow in grace without the presence of Christ. His presence is known by His works among His people. It's only as they catch this miraculous, this, this miraculous catch of fish that John recognizes Jesus on the shore. Does that make sense? Lastly, conversion. You're not going to have conversions without the presence of Christ, are you? You're not going to have conversions without the presence of Christ. That's probably the most obvious, isn't it? It's just not going to happen. Uh, so we see Christ is, is present among the works. We could look at many other things, but worship, growth and grace, conversion. So in putting this all together and moving to a close, what do we have? Jesus is appearing to his disciples. He's meeting his disciples in their weakness, giving them strength through that transition period. But we also glean from that that Jesus is meeting with us, right? In our time of need, Jesus is present with us. We're not bothering him. We're not troubling him. In fact, think about it as parents, those of you who are parents. Do you like it when your children come to you and say, boy, could you help me with this? Can, can I ask, can I, can I just get some advice from you? It's a great compliment, isn't it? We, we, when we call on the Lord to help us, we are praising him. We're not bothering him. We're praising him. We're telling him, I'm not sufficient in and of myself, but Lord, you are. And I need you to help me through this time. And here we see what kind of nature God has. He is of the kind of nature that he takes the initiative to help us when we don't even ask for it. How much more will he come to us when we do ask for it? And secondly, we see how we can see clearly how he is present with us, don't we? Let's start, let's start thinking about the singing from now on. Let's start thinking about the praying from now on. Let's start thinking about the fact that we're studying God's Word verse by verse from now on. How do we know when Christ is present with us? This wouldn't be going on and happening if Christ wasn't present with us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you're showing us from your Word this morning. 
You're showing us how we can recognize that you're with us. And you're showing your loving heart that you're not in any way, shape, or form bashful about visiting us. And Father, I pray that this will create a, an anticipation, a holy anticipation and longing that we would come and we would desire to be here. We would desire to be gathered with our brothers and sisters that we might enjoy presence, not looking for a feeling, not looking for goosebumps, but just looking to hear the singing, looking to hear the praise, looking to join in on the prayer, looking to be part of studying the Word, and all of these various graces, looking to growth, longing for conversions. Father, do this work in our hearts, we pray. Give us this vision, we pray. Give us this sense of sound. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.